Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This podcast is recorded on the lands of the Jajawarong and the Wadawarong people of the Eastern Kulin Nation and we wish to acknowledge them as traditional owners. We would also like to pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and Aboriginal elders of other communities who may be listening. I'm sorry, what now? Lamakarotta. What do they call The Lamasharotta. I'm sorry, she's having a stroke. <laughs> are you okay? Are you are you okay? <laughs> la 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 malacrota. No, I've made that word up now. Now I can't stop saying it. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Chicks Tree, the podcast that is rewriting the history books to include the women that were written out of them. Because yes, they were. It's no surprise if you're new to the podcast, then. Good luck because you're going to get very angry. And welcome. And welcome. (laughs) That's Phoebe. I'm Annie. We do this weekly podcast where we just make each other really angry by talking about women who should be included in the history books, but alas, they are not. They are not. I said to my nephews who are religiously listening, um, they love it, they said the other day, oh, we we listened and we learned about Play-Doh. I was like, yeah, that's right. And I said, um, and I was looking after them on the weekend and I said, oh, what are you doing? I said, oh, I'm writing, um, you know, I'm researching my podcast episode. They're like, what are you doing it on? And I told them and they said, oh, what about, um, what about some other boys or something and my nephew Taylor who's nine said you know you could have one podcast all about girls and one all about boys and I was like no there's too much about the boys he's like okay yeah oh bless him I thought about you on the weekend did send you a text as well Mm. found I think probably will be one of your most favourite Four Corners episodes. <laughs> if you watch Four Corners, I'm not sure. It's a, bit old, it's a bit old school. Do you know, a little bit of fact, a little bit of a fact, a bit of um, trivia, Four Corners is the lung- four- <laughs> longest. Oh, it's the longest. the longest. <laughs> uh, four Corners is the longest running TV show in Australia. There you go. If I-, I, did not, I did not know that. Yeah. Mm. Yes, yeah, so, I do love a bit of Four Corners, a bit of Australian story. Same. Oh, I love a bit yeah. of investigative journalism. Yes, yes. You know? Mm. So the most recent episode, which will be available to everybody who listens when this comes out because it was, I think, may have watched it live and then now it's on iview, is all about DNA and how genealogy is helping solve crimes and basically saying that it's getting to the point where if you think you're going to commit a crime and not get caught, you've got another bloody thing coming mm. because it goes back into looking at Paul Holes, who I love. He's uh, hosts a couple of podcasts, one in particular that he's just started called Buried Bones. He looks at kind of old cases and, back, you know, from back in like the the early kind of 20th century, 19th century, he actually found the Golden State Killer. So he was the guy who said, why don't we, like we have his DNA, but his DNA is not on the database. Mm. Why don't we go to one of those 
historical databases yeah. yep. and see what we get. And it was yep. the first time someone had thought to go for familial is that what they call it? Famili- yeah, familial, familial DNA. Yeah, DNA. Yep. Yep. So he was able to track down relatives and from that then they were able to, you know, whittle out a few people going, well, he's not six foot and he's not mm. this and he's not, you know, um, from the suspects they had and they got down to the last guy who was the Golden State Killer was, yeah. and the next day Paul Holes retired and it, Betty said, look, this is, you know, you've really got to check this guy out and, um, yeah, ended up yeah. ended up there being him go. and catching him. Incredible. So it's, um, I mean, once you spit into a tube and you put your DNA out there for something like Ancestry.com or um, MyHeritage, that sort of thing, yeah. they own that specimen. So yes. they own all your data. Yeah. So you've got to be comfortable with giving them that information. There's another um, – and that's, you know, that's all in the terms and conditions, which, you know, nobody reads that. No. Um, but there's another program called GEDmatch, which is worldwide, and right. you can upload that DNA sample to that and you could potentially get more hits. So now GEDmatch, they've got a disclaimer saying this can be used for police investigation. So you yes. need to be aware that this is in the public domain now and yeah, they can use this to, yeah. Because I was wondering what the legal things were around mm. that because when I sent you that text saying I found I found a new job for you, you can be yeah. the DNA detective <laughs> Yeah, because there's a woman who that's basically what she does now. She's mm. a genealogist and now she's realised that there's this whole other area of, of crime and forensics where pe- uh, the police have come to her and said we've got this person's DNA can you track down a relative um, and look through family tree to try to find mm. the connection and she's done it she's been really successful in the cases yeah. that she's worked on and not only that she said that they are able now to look at the DNA of somebody and create a pretty accurate picture of what they look like based on yeah isn't that fascinating and you should have seen some of the examples like they were showing what they think based on the dna this person's gonna look like and then they would overlay the real person and it was almost i mean it was they were almost identical unbelievable mm-hmm. so I highly recommend it's called dna the end of crime and it's the latest episode on on four corners on the abc on iview and, um, you know, we've had uh, a lot of rain in oh, yeah. Victoria and you have been hit hard. I was. I was. We're okay now, but there was a point there where we did think, uh, yeah, we were going to have to get a boat to leave mm. where we were. We were, were actually flooded in for only for a day. Um, power went out. But, I mean, I kind of look at what we had and it was pretty bad in terms of not being able to leave the house and, you know, right up to the driveway and the front of the house was um, basically a river. But there's people who are much worse off than oh. I was, those poor people in like Shepparton and I know. Um, it's, it's Chuka now and, and even those poor people in the um, Maribyrnong, that's a hard one to say, isn't mm. it? <laughs> No. Try spelling it. Mary, Mary or Benong. <laughs> uh, yeah, like it, that just is insane. One of my I guys I work with, he goes to that pub that they, I mean, I love that in Australia it's all about, look at the pub, oh, the pub, mm. oh, the beer garden was here and now it's up to here and like yep. the, the pub is the, <laughs> that's, is the, that's the benchmark, yeah. 
I know, I know. Oh, it's really scary. But I was um, talking last night about um, the floods, you know, because this, this is obviously the worst that we've seen in a long time. Yeah, yeah. But there's sort of been others around Geelong, where I'm from, over maybe the last 20, 25 years. And I remember when I was at primary school, it's the floods of 94, mm-hmm. and we lived in a valley. Um, sort of close to a river and we got flooded in, couldn't go to school. It was the best day of my life. Yeah. I still remember. It was just amazing. Yeah, I remember yeah. that as a little kid too, like thinking mm. those big, when the big drama, like I remember big, like big fires happening as well when mm. I was at school and not going to school but, you know, not comprehending that it was actually devastating. For oh, yeah, people, absolutely. Yeah, I remember that. Just, yep. What do you mean we don't have to go to school? This is the <gasps> this best is amazing. day ever. Yeah, yeah. Because as a kid that's all you'd wish for. Right? Exactly. That's right. So you could sit home and watch Days of Our Lives. It's uh, <laughs> very grown up. Well, I just remember it being on in the middle of the day. That's all I remember. Yes. Mm, yes yeah. Was yes. a fan of The Bold and the Beautiful, though, as I got a bit older. Uh, this was inspired again by my nephews, Taylor and Ollie, who were Brilliant. fascinated by the history of Play Doh. So yes. I thought I'd do a little, um, little, little toy ah, fact. Yeah. Um, so the yo yo. We all know the yo-yo. The yo-yo. Yes. Mm. I had a blue and red one that used to light up. Oh, amazing. I had a Pepsi. Yeah. I had a Pepsi one. Yeah. And my brother had mine, a Sprite. My might have been a Coke one, but I feel like it must have come out of like a show bag or something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and my dad is a whiz is at the um, yo-yo. You know, he could do the, the teacup and the rock the, the cradle and all, and the, the, all yeah. those things. Yeah. 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 Uh, so... It's believed that the yo-yo originated in either China, the Philippines or Greece mm-hmm. and then spread widely throughout the East and the West as a plaything or a toy. But records vary with relation to when it was actually first used and they've been it's been recorded as anywhere between 440 BC to 1000 BC in yeah, ancient wow. Greece. Mm-hmm. The original yo-yo were discs made out of stone and then later wood or terracotta. So imagine one of those hitting you when you're doing oh, around the, the world. Cradle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, around the world. Doing. <laughs> uh, so the terracotta discs were likely to have been used as an offering to the gods when a child came of age. Oh. Uh, and the toy has had various monikers throughout history, including the Bandalore, Whirly Gig, and the French called it the Le Emigret, which. Oh, um, sounds so good. Everything sounds like good. Uh, so the latter phrase means to leave the country and it's believed to have been a bit of a sinister connotation referencing the toy's popularity during the French Revolution and the French aristocracy's um, fleeing of France during that time. Um, There is a painting of King Louis XVII showing him playing uh, with a yo-yo as a child. So to give you context, he died when he was 10, which uh-huh. was in 1785. So we're looking at the late right. 1700s. Yeah, that, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And there's also a number of paintings showing Napoleon throwing a yo-yo prior to entering the Battle of Waterloo. The toy continued its popularity around the world um, and it's seen to have marketability during the 1920s by an American businessman. So popularity grew again at that time. Mm-hmm. And since then, it's even been to space on the Space Shuttle Discovery Ooh. in 1985. There so you there, go. There you go. The yo-yo. <laughs> also, delicious biscuit. Oh, mm. yes, mm. the yo-yo. Mm. Oh, I'm thinking of the Vovo. <laughs> also delicious. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. What's the yo-yo? 
The yo-yo is like um, two shortbreads with icing. Isn't that the Vovo? No, the iced Vovo is the like rectangular one with the pink marshmallow yeah. and the jam and yeah. the yeah and the coconut. coconut. Mm. But there's a yo-yo. You've never had a yo-yo before. I don't think so. I need to Google this. Did you this. grow up under a rock? <laughs> yo-yo biscuit. Similar to a melting moment. No, oh, there's I nothing. know a melting moment. Mm, yeah, oh, so it's like a there we go. Yo-yo. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yo-yo. Okay. I didn't know that's what they were called. Probably I just would have said melting moment. Mm. What is the difference between a yo-yo and a melting moment? These two biscuits are often confused, but the simple differences seems that yo-yos contain custard powder and that melting moments are traditionally smaller. There you go. This article says try them both. (laughs) (laughs) Will do. So today I'm going to tell you all about a young woman called Noor Khan, who, although a pacifist, played an integral role in the Second World War. Okay, so a lot was going on around the early 20th century, just before Noor was born. We'll give you a few little factoids. Mm -hmm. Love it. Agnes Baden-Powell established the Girl Guides in 1910, so this is the equivalent of the Scouts. Yeah. In 1913, the dance, the Foxtrot, became a popular ballroom dance. I know how to do that because I have done poor yeah, dancing before. You, you are a, you're a dancer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and in 1914, Edward Berlin established the concept for remote fax photo slash news reporting. Oh. Mm. So, right. So he go. would go away and report and then send the fax back. The facsimile, yes. Oh, like the facsimile, not the facts well, of the... Oh. Well, I assume it just it, all I could find is fax photo slash news reporting. So I assume it's sending the facsimile, the facsimile of, of the, the report. Report, yeah. Right. Mm. I'll shut up now. There you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> shut up. Shut up. Tell a story. <laughs> all right. Noor Iniat Khan was born in Moscow, Russia, on New Year's Day in 1914. Nor was a direct descendant of Tipu Sultan, an 18th century Muslim ruler of the Mysore state in India and who died fighting against British rule in India in 1799. So technically, Nor was a princess. Nor's father was Iniat Khan, who was an Indian Muslim professor of music, a singer, poet and philosopher. He was also well known as the pioneer of Sufism to the West. So Sufism Mm -hmm. is a religious practice which focuses on the Islamic practice of spirituality, ritualism, asceticism, and esotericism. All of these isms. Mm, Lots of isms. Yeah, all right. He sounds like a very sensitive man. Yes. The poetry and the music Mm, and the the, the the philosophizing. Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So from 1910 for two years, Iniat toured the United States with his brother and cousin to spread the word of Sufism and practice his music. In 1911, he met Aura Ray Baker, a white American woman from Albuquerque in New Mexico, who at the time was under the guardianship of her brother. He engaged Iniat to teach Aura Indian music and the two soon fell in love. Mm-hmm. They became engaged to be married. However, Aura's brother forbade the union and Iniat left America and sailed to London to continue his teachings. Mm-hmm. The couple eventually married in London in 1913, where Aura then took the name Amina Began after she converted to Islam. Mm-hmm. And Amina was a poet in her own right as well. Oh, lovely. 
The couple lived in London and then Paris before they travelled to Moscow with Inyat to continue his teachings where Noor was born on the 1st of January 1914. At the time, tensions were growing in Russia and in July 1914, Inyat, Amina and Noor returned to Paris where only a few weeks later war was declared. Mm. The family of three then left Paris and moved back to England where they would remain for the duration of the war. They went on to have three more children between 1916 and 1919 and it was here whilst living in London that Inyat oversaw the founding of an order of Sufism and spread the word of his doctrine further. In 1920, the family moved back to France, settling near Paris after they had begun to face increasing surveillance from the British from Inyat's. In 1920, the family moved back to France, settling near Paris after they had begun to face increasing surveillance from the British for Inyat's pro-Indian pro-India views. As a child, Noor was described as quiet, shy, sensitive and a dreamer and often made up fairy stories while sitting in the gardens near the family home. Then in 1927, tragedy struck when Inyat had returned to India to teach and he died suddenly, Mm. leaving Amina a widow with four children, Noor being the eldest at 13. She was heartbroken and inconsolable. Noor stepped up and took responsibility for her mother's and siblings' welfare. Noor went on to study child psychology at the Sorbonne and also music at the Paris Conservatory, composing music for the harp and the piano. And she was also trained in the vena, which is a sitar type of instrument. Wow. After studying, Noor began writing and publishing poetry and children's stories in both English and French, as well as becoming a regular contributor to children's magazines and French radio. In 1939, she published her most notable work called 20 Jataka Tales, which is an English translation of stories about the reincarnation of Buddha. With the outbreak of yet another war and when France was invaded by Germany, the Khans fled Paris for Bordeaux, where they then boarded a boat to return to England. The war was raging around Europe and Noor's beloved France was in the firing line and she wanted to be able to help in some way. Although the Khan family were staunch pacifists, Noor and her brother Viliat decided to join the war effort in the hopes of helping to defeat the enemy without taking a life. They believed that merely opposing fascism was not sufficient and that they needed to play a more active role that would not involve taking a life. They wanted to do their part in the voluntary forces for the good of the Allies. They did not have to fight the war, but they did so for their core principles of non-violence, universality of religions, fighting against fascism and occupation. Mm. Nor was driven to defeat the Nazis and said, I wish some Indians would win high military distinction in this war. If one or two could do something in the Allied service, which was very brave and which everybody admired, it would help to make a bridge between the English people and the Indians. In November 1940, Nor joined the Women's Auxiliary Air Force, the WAF, as it was known, and trained as a wireless operator. She was assigned to a bomber training school the following year and soon after applied for a commission in an effort to relieve herself from what she perceived to be boring work. Fair enough. Yeah. (laughs) Then in early 1943, Noor was called in for an interview at the offices of the Special Operation Executive or the SOE. Is she going to be a spy? The SOE had been set up by Winston Churchill to aid the resistance movements in occupied countries. Their job was to sabotage and provide money and arms for the resistance, the underground networks in occupied territories. (laughs) Noor had been seen by some as somewhat of an undesirable candidate due to her quiet and gentle nature. However, she was also fluent in French and knew the area very well and had connections. Yes, that makes her a perfect spy. Exactly, exactly. Hello? 
She became a highly skilled telegraphist and reacted with great success under some of the training exercises. These could include instructors bursting into their sleeping quarters in the middle of the night to mock interrogate them like the Gestapo would if they were caught. Mm. There had been several disagreements about her suitability and her SOE report stated that she had an unstable and temperamental personality. It is very doubtful that she is really suited to work in the field. Just a bit moody. Yeah. This was disputed by the section chief who simply remarked, nonsense, in the margin of the report. Good. That's Mm. brilliant. Yes. Nonsense. Nonsense. Although others may have questioned her skills and fortitude, she never questioned herself or doubted her decision. She knew she was the right person for the job and completely understood that her mission would likely result in her death. It's pretty grim. Mm. It's pretty grim, isn't it? But Yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway. Mm-hmm. At the time, the average radio operator in occupied Paris lasted six weeks before their capture. Each time a radio operator died or was captured, they would be replaced immediately as these operators were the only link between agents and the French resistance and London. It was one of the deadliest roles an agent could have as it was not only going to be dangerous working undercover in occupied France, but the job also required carrying around about 13 kilos of radio equipment in a heavy suitcase. Jesus. Mm. Nor did a year of training in spycraft, which included learning Morse code, complicated codes, to spotting and, in- and interpreting hidden messages that would be sent to them via programs on the BBC French service, as well as learning physical combat. <laughs> Although she never intended to shoot to kill, it is said that she enjoyed shooting a pistol to help with concentration and meditation. Oh, it's lovely. Love it. You know what it's Isn't like. It? You just light a bit of incense, mm. pop yeah. on a little meditation CD and fire your pistol. <laughs> So soothing. (laughs) Self-care, they call it. Oh, God. Um, SOE agents also had to learn an entire backstory to their new identity, which usually hailed from towns that had been destroyed so as there was no way for the Germans to get access to records to verify who they were. They would have to invent everything, including their whole family history and extended family members. Nor was given a new name, Jeannie-Marie Renier, as well as a code name, Madeline. Nor's name was also hidden under another assumed name, Nora, as apparently mm. the British had trouble with foreign names. You know. Just, I don't. Yeah. No, no. It's unusual. Vera Atkins, Nor's superior who oversaw all the female agents' training, was confident in her ability. Upon their departure to the occupied zone, Vera would hand them four pills, a sleeping pill, a stimulant pill, a pill that would give them a stomach ache, and cyanide, a suicide pill. Jesus. So took the one you needed if you needed it. Yeah. Holy mm. guacamole. Yeah. That's like so, uh, the matrix of the yeah. of the bleed. You don't want to mix don't want to mix those no. up, do you? Jesus. Yeah. Upon Nor's departure, Vera also pinned a little silver bird on her lapel to bring her luck. Oh. Then, under the light of a full moon, for the best visibility, this was always when agents were flown to drop zones, Mm -hmm. in the early hours of the 17th of June, 1943, Nor was parachuted behind enemy lines in France, the first female agent to do so. So All previous women prior to this had been sent as couriers. So no one as a, yeah, radio operator. Yeah, Wow. Her task was to maintain radio contact between Britain and the resistance in Paris. However, almost as soon as Noor arrived in France, things began to go wrong. The agent who was there to greet her on landing turned out to be a double agent who was giving information to the Germans. Oh, no. However, that was not to be found out immediately. Oh, no. Mm. 
nor arrived to a circuit of spies which had already been compromised when two Canadian spies whose parachute drop had gone wrong had subsequently been arrested by the Gestapo. They had discovered the code names on them and the addresses of the agents in their circuit. One by one, each of the agents in what was known as the Prosper Circuit were found and arrested as well as the French families who had helped and hidden them. Mm, That's not good. This was detrimental to the circuit and Noor was requested to return to London as it was too dangerous to remain. She refused and said she would remain in Paris. She was the only radio operator left and wanted to try and rebuild the spy network. Wow. God, bravery. I know. Jesus. She worked alone for the next three months where she managed to evade the Gestapo to arrange the deliveries of money and equipment to the French resistance who were preparing for the long-awaited Allied invasion of France. She also planned the successful escape of other agents to safety, got false papers to spies and managed the escape of 30 Allied airmen who had been shot down over enemy territory. They had to move around to a new location every day so as not to be intercepted by the Germans and to avoid capture. She relied on many of her old contacts from her years growing up in Paris to help with this. Mm. Moving also meant setting up the equipment they needed, including that 13 kilos worth of radio equipment yeah. mm-hmm. um, and a 70 foot aerial so it's about 21 meter holy shit aerial in length i know oh god they also had to keep their communication brief before leaving their area in paris it only took the germans about half an hour to track down a transmission so time was of the essence <laughs> being the lone radio operator left in paris nor was doing the work of six radio operators for prosper for months and it was her transmission that became the only link between the agents around paris and london wow there were two instances where Noor was almost caught by the Germans. The first was where she was setting up the latest, setting up her latest undercover position in an apartment. She was left with no choice but to set up the giant aerial out of her own window. She lowered the aerial out of the window, then had to make her way out onto the street in order to arrange it in a tree so it would not be spotted. Oh, in the me- I know. In the midst of setting up her equipment, she was approached by a German officer. He asked if he could help her and Noor simply replied, yes. The officer must have believed she'd been a simple French woman trying to set up a radio antenna to listen to some music. Oh, God, lucky. I know. Jesus. The German officer helped her set set up her aerial and then left on his merry way, not realising he'd just helped the enemy. Oh, probably thinking he was really good too. Exactly. (laughs) The second time was when Noor was riding on the Paris Metro with her giant suitcase full of equipment. She spied two German soldiers who had been watching her and rather than get off at the next stop and look suspicious, she stayed on board the train to face any questioning they may that may have been coming her way. Mm. It was common for German soldiers to check travellers' luggage and when they asked her what she was carrying in her bag, she simply replied, cinema <laughs> She simply replied cinematographic apparatus oh wow cinematographic Mm. apparatus Mm. she opened the suitcase a fraction of a way and clearly the soldiers had absolutely no idea what that they what they were looking for because they had a look and replied we thought it was something else and were on their way leaving Nora alone and clearly it was something else clearly but I love that she's on both occasions she's just said the thing that's the most obvious Mm, as well, not yeah. tried to be like, oh, 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 it's, you yeah. know, this. She's just like, well, yeah, that's that's what it is. It's and just you, what if it you're, is. If you're that dumb that you, you don't mm. know, then uh, joke's <laughs> on you, exactly. dummy. Exactly, Yeah. <laughs> uh, the Gestapo was closing in on her during the latter part of 1943 and it was a dangerous game of cat and mouse. 
The Allies were trying to do everything to save her and they would take her to hair salons where they would constantly dye her hair a different colour as well as change her wardrobe so she was unrecognisable. They may have changed these things. However, they didn't change the fact that she tended to wear the colour blue, exactly like before. Mm -hmm. It was a colour that she was especially fond of and this, in the end, was a giveaway as the Gestapo knew her partiality for the colour and were able to identify her. Oh, no. The Germans had been on a case and they knew all about her and could even hear her transmissions. However, they could never quite find her. She would also send letters back to England to her family, the letters of which were being copied by that double agent who had met her at the airfield on her arrival Mm. and were giving them to the Germans. Oh, dear. Then in October 1943, Noor was betrayed by someone in her own network, the sister of a resistance fighter. No, The French woman went to the Gestapo and demanded money in exchange for the address of a British agent. They offered her 100,000 francs, which was about a tenth of what a British agent would normally fetch. At the time, Noor was only a few days from being replaced by another agent. She was meant to return to England on the 14th of October. However, on the 13th of October 1943, she was captured by the Gestapo and taken to their headquarters. Uh Uh-oh. Noor was interrogated. However, she had already been on the Germans' radar when they caught her and she was the last of the Prosper circuit left. She was loyal to the fight through and through and even after she was captured, Noor was never giving up secrets and was not going down without a fight. Oh, shit. There had also been mistakes made when Noor had confused her instructions when she was told to file her messages. She believed that meant to file was to keep them. However, it was supposed to be that the messages were carefully transmitted and then destroyed. Therefore, when she was arrested, all of these messages and codes were found as well as her equipment. This allowed the Germans to send fake messages to London requesting arms, money and more agents, which which subsequently were handed straight to the Germans upon their arrival. Mm. Glaring errors had also been made by the English too. Nor was given a special key code to communicate if she had been captured. This was exactly 18 letters long and put into practice for this exact reason. London believed she had made a mistake in her codes, which is something she never did, and subsequently they ignored it and didn't realise she'd been captured by the Germans for months. Mm. That's the whole reason for the secret code. I know. I know. It would have been like, you know, when you accidentally call SOS on your iPhone when you hold the button down for too long? Yeah. (laughs) She doesn't mean it. (laughs) Yeah, should be right, mate. Yeah. Yeah. She tried to escape the Gestapo twice. As soon as she arrived, she demanded a bath, which the guards, being as dim as they were, allowed her to take and even shut the door when she demanded privacy. As soon as the door was closed and she was alone, she climbed out of the window and onto the roof. Yes, Queen. Yes. However, she was quickly caught and returned through another window. (sighs) Her escape tactics were not over when she realised there were other captives in the cells around her. She tapped out Morse code on the wall and managed to make contact with two other agents who had been arrested. Nor and the two men made a plan to escape through the barred windows at the top of their cells by passing notes and a screwdriver that had been hidden in the toilet between them. Wow. On the 25th of November, the three finished loosening the bars on their skylights and escaped onto the roof. Unfortunately, it was an attack by their own, the RAF, which set off the air raid sirens, which in turn alerted their captors to their escape. 
The three swung into a window of one of the neighbouring houses where the Gestapo were waiting for them. Mm-hmm. Now, there is a rumour that Nora attempted a third escape. However, that one was never recorded by the Germans, if it did happen, but I like to think that there was. It probably did. They were just a bit yeah. embarrassed. Let's exactly. Well, that one. Exactly. You know, a woman evading them at least to- twice. Totally. Mm. The three were offered a declaration to sign to confirm that they wouldn't try to escape again. One of the agents did sign it and lived to tell the tale. Nor refused to sign it and was sent to Fortsheim Prison and classified as a highly dangerous detainee. She became the first British agent to be sent to Germany during the war. Oh, God, imagine. I know. So during her time at Fortsheim, Nor was tortured and kept in solitary confinement. The torture of women by the Gestapo usually included beatings, sleep deprivation, cutting off breasts, pulling out fingernails and toenails and water torture. Mm. However, Nor never gave them any information. Hans Kiefer, the former head of the SD in Paris, so the SD was the Nazi intelligence agency, testified after the war that she did not give the Gestapo any information and lied constantly to keep the secrets of the Allies and was extremely uncooperative. Mm. During her time in Fortsheim, in amongst being tortured and starved on her minimal rations, Nor passed messages to other French political prisoners. She would scratch messages into the food bowls and although it may have taken some time to reach the correct person, they eventually got there. Oh, that's incredible. This was eventually how she passed her contact information on to a French woman named Yolande. Yolande made efforts to track down Noor after the war and she was the reason why we know what happened to Noor in the end. Wow. Noor was transported to Dachau concentration camp in September 1944 mm. where she was beaten, shot and then cremated. Oh, dear. Germany was beginning to realise their likely loss of the war and as such Heinrich Himmler was given orders to kill all captured secret agents as they knew too much about the Nazis. It was seven months after Noor was killed that the Allies liberated the camp and it was not until two years after the war ended that Noor's family and former colleagues finally learned of her fate. Poor Noor. Her her interrogator in Paris asked her whether she had wasted her life by joining the services and whether her sacrifice was in vain. She replied that it did not matter and she had serviced her country and that was her recompense. Noor was a passionate believer in Indian independence and in her initial interview with the WAF, the panel were taken aback when Noor remarked that after the war she might feel obliged to fight for India against the British. However, she remained hopeful that her service might help to build understanding between the two countries. Mm. She was posthumously awarded the George Cross Medal, the UK's highest civilian award in 1949, and the French Croix de Guerre, the War Cross, in 1946. In 2012, she had a statue dedicated to her in Russell Square in London, which was unveiled by Princess Anne, the first Indian and Muslim woman to be honoured with such a statue. Wow, yeah. And most recently she was awarded a blue plaque, which is very significant in London, and it's a scheme where a plaque of a notable figure is fitted to or near a building in which a person worked or lived. So you might have, if you've been to London, you might have seen that they're quite, yeah, yeah, yeah they're, they're around. Yeah, yeah. Um, and just to... You know, put it in context, Australia is not the only place with a lack of public representation of women Uh, in statues and monuments. Mm -hmm. So in Britain, there are more statues of men named John than of women. In total. Yeah. 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 Nor has also had two biographies written about her, Madeline in 1952 and Spy Princess in 2008. In 2019, there was a biopic called 
a call to spy about the SOE network who trained female spies and which features Noor as one of the main characters. Awesome. In France, she's remembered as Madeleine, a heroine of the resistance, and there is a plaque outside her family home. A band plays there every year on Bastille Day. The niece of General Charles de Gaulle also paid tribute to her in Paris when she said, nothing, neither her nationality nor the tradition of her family, none of these obliged her to take her position in the war. However, she chose it. It is our fight that she chose, that she pursued with an admirable and invincible courage. So the name Noor means light of womanhood, and at her death at the age of 30 years old, Mm -hmm. Noor's last words were liberté, which means freedom in French. And that is the remarkable story of Ooh. Noor Inyat Khan. So sad. She's only I 30. Know. I know. 30. And she'd done all of that. Like mm. how frightening. Mm. Oh, I've got goosebumps. Just how frightening to, to do that. You know, that young age where she's she's getting dropped into bloody, you know, places and, oh, it's just incredible. Yeah. And, she, I mean, she was only, but she was only there for three months yeah yeah before she was captured and that was you know three times the length that you know a radio operator was said to have yes yeah in their position before they'd be captured or killed and knowing that you're going into that with with a likelihood that you will Mm. be um captured yeah and then just sticking to your guns regardless Mm. of what's going to happen to you like that's I mean it just is insane the amount of you know, dedication to cause. Just watching all of that stuff of the climate protesters, the stop oil um, protesters and, you know, the the discussions around, you know, that they've, you know, went in and ruined, tried to ruin art and blah, blah, mm. blah, 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 disrespectful. But, you know, just to have the courage of that conviction of just yeah. going, I believe in this so much that, I'm going to do this and I'm going to get in a shit ton of trouble mm. knowing that I'm going to get in a shit ton of trouble. But people saw us and they saw what we did. And if it's going to have start a conversation around, you know, the things that they want us to talk about, then amazing. Mm. Yeah. But just the, yep. the, the, the courage of young people. Mm, like that I know. is incredible. It just absolutely yep. blows my mind. I know. I don't. I oh. don't think I've ever felt that compelled for something. No, me either. You know? I think there are lots of things that I am. I have very strong feelings about, mm, but mm-hmm. I don't know if there's ever been anything that I'd be like, I'm strapping myself to the road, sort of. Yeah. You know, that yeah. Analogy. Um, there are lots of things that I do, yeah, I do get really fired up about. Yeah. But I think there's a part of me too that goes, oh, but do I know everything? Not to, you know, do I have enough to argue this case? Yes. Do I have enough knowledge that I can, you know, yeah, yeah, bestow yeah. upon someone if they were to sit down and go, well, why this, that and the other? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, so lots of, lots of causes that I definitely have strong beliefs in. But you're right, I'm particularly younger people, yes. I suppose, that are really – yeah, really passionate, you know, about climate change, and maybe that's a generational thing too. Yeah, it could because be. we haven't had as much of an education about that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And also, I mean, it's it's going to affect those people mm. a lot more, you know, than than yep. us. You know, we're all going to be gone um, mm. if we keep going the way we're going, probably sooner than we thought. 
I just don't know if I could walk down a street screaming something. Yeah. I don't know if I have that in me. Yeah. But maybe that's what we need. Maybe that's what mm. climate change needs is for us to get angry and get on our bloody soapboxes and start supergluing ourselves to mm. museum walls. Yeah. What are you doing on Saturday? Um, uh, busy. <laughs> You know when you accidentally get super glue stuck on your finger and then you touch your other finger, you're like, oh, my God, oh, yeah. my God, oh, my God, I'm going to be like this forever. I imagine doing that to a wall. And did you, like, they put on so much. Yeah. And then she rubs it in with the other hand and then oh. she puts that hand on and then she picks oh, up no. the can. So yeah. she's stuck there and she's stuck there and, uh, yeah, you just mm. you thought your life was over when you got a little oh. tiny little bit of, of that on your hand. I oh, know, exactly. Well, I've just seen on Instagram there's been some – um, I don't know if they're Peter activists or vegan activists who just in the UK have just started emptying milk into the oh. supermarket. And my first thought is, like, if you're a vegan, good on you. But you're wasting food. Like yeah. that, you are. Oh, so they're getting uh, milk bottles and they're emptying the milk just bottles. Just pouring them all over the, the, floor. On the floor. Yeah. Oh, no, that's a bit silly. That's very silly. I get very angry that's when it comes waste. to food wastage. Yeah, that's But also waste. you're just going to make those cows have to work harder now because you've wasted all that milk. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. Oh, no, that's not good. No. That's a bit silly. Don't do that. Don't do that. People. Also littering. Also littering. But, mm. you know, maybe think about super gluing your hand to. Your face. <laughs> no. <laughs> your face. <laughs> maybe we just go around and super glue our hands to all the male statues. In protest yeah. of the fact that there yeah. are no female statues. Mm. There you go, yep. historians. That's a little job for you for the weekend. Send us a selfie. <laughs> Don't say we told you so. Don't say you t- we told you to do it. Um, uh, anyway, on that note, good ep. Thank you. That was yeah. amazing. Incredible. No. Thank you. Thank you. We'll uh, yeah, we'll be in your ears again next week. And until then, stay cheeky. Yeah. Chico rolls. Yeah. <laughs>